0: Section 2 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. Volume 1, Chapter 1 of Alchemy, Part 2. Had the opinion that gold and silver could be artificially formed, originated with Hermes Trismegistus, or had it prevailed among the ancient Egyptians, it would certainly have been alluded to by Herodotus, who spent so many years in Egypt, and was instructed by the priests in all the science of the Egyptians. Had chemistry been the name of a science, real or fictitious, which existed as early as the expedition of the Argonauts, and had so many treatises on it, as Suetus alleges, existed in Egypt before the reign of Diocletian. it could hardly have escaped the notice of Pliny, who was so curious and so indefatigable in his researches, and who has collected, in his natural history, a kind of digest of all the knowledge of the ancients in every department of practical science. The fact that the term chemistry never occurs in any Greek or Roman writer prior to Suetus, who wrote so late as the 11th century, seems to overturn all idea of the existence of that pretended science among the ancients, notwithstanding the elaborate attempts of Olos Boritius to prove the contrary. I am disposed to believe that chemistry, or alchemy, understanding by the term the art of making gold and silver, originated with the Arabians when they began to turn their attention to medicine, after the establishment of the caliphs or if it had previously been cultivated by the Greeks, as the writing of Zosimus the Panoplite, if genuine, would lead us to suppose that it was taken up by the Arabians and reduced by them into regular form and order. If the works of Gebert could be genuine, they leave little doubt on this point. Gebert is supposed to have been a physician and to have written in the 7th century. He admits, as a first principle, that metals are compounds of mercury and sulfur. He talks of the philosopher's stone, professes to give the mode of preparing it, and teaches the way of converting the different metals, known in his time, into medicines, on whose efficacy he bestows the most ample panegyrics. Thus the principles which lie at the bottom of alchemy were implicitly adopted by him yet I can nowhere find in him any attempt to make gold artificially. His chemistry was entirely devoted to the improvement of medicine. The subsequent pretensions of the alchemist to convert the baser metals into gold are nowhere avowed by him. I am disposed from this time to suspect that the theory of gold-making was started after Gebert's time or at least that it was after the seventh century, before any alchemist ventured to affirm that he himself was in possession of the secret, and could fabricate gold artificially at pleasure. For there is a wide distance between the opinion that gold may be made artificially, and the affirmation that we are in possession of a method by which this transmutation of the baser metals into gold can be accomplished. The first may be adopted and defended with much plausibility and perfect honesty, but the second would require a degree of skill, far exceeding that of most scientific votary of chemistry at present existing. The opinion of the alchemists was that all the metals are compounds, that the baser metals contain the same constituents as gold, contaminated indeed with various impurities, but capable when their impurities are removed or remedied of assuming all the properties and characters of gold. The substance possessing this wonderful power they distinguish by the name of lapis philosophorum, or philosopher's stone, and they usually describe it as a red powder, having a peculiar smell. Few of the alchemists who have left writings behind them boast of being possessed of the philosopher's stone, paracelsus indeed affirms that he was acquainted with the method of making it and gives several processes which however are not intelligible but many affirm that they had seen the philosopher's stone that they had portions of it in their possession and that they had seen several of the inferior metals especially lead and quicksilver converted by means of it into gold many stories of this kind are upon record and so well authenticated that we need not be surprised at their having been generally credited. It will be sufficient if we state one or two of those which depend on the most unexceptionable evidence. The following relation is given by Mangitis on the authority of M. Gross, a clergyman of Geneva, of the most unexceptionable character, and at the same time a skillful physician and expert chemist. About the year 1650, an unknown Italian came to Geneva, and took lodgings at the sign of the Green Cross. After remaining there a day or two, he requested de Luc, the landlord, to procure him a man acquainted with Italian, to accompany him through the town, and point out those things which deserve to be examined. De Luc was acquainted with M. Gross, at that time about twenty years of age, and a student in Geneva and, knowing his proficiency in the Italian language, requested him to accompany the stranger. To this proposition he willingly acceded, and attended the Italian everywhere for the space of a fortnight. The stranger now began to complain of want of money, which alarmed M. Gross not a little, for at that time he was very poor, and he became apprehensive, from the tenor of the stranger's conversation, that he intended to ask the loan of money from him, But instead of this, the Italian asked him if he was acquainted with any goldsmith, whose bellows and other utensils they might be permitted to use, and who would not refuse to supply them with the different articles requisite for a particular process which he wanted to perform. M. Gross named a M. Bureau, to whom the Italian immediately repaired. He readily furnished crucibles, pure tin, quicksilver, and the other things required by the Italian. The goldsmith left his workshop that the Italian might be under less restraint, leaving M. Gross with one of his own workmen as an attendant. The Italian put a quantity of tin into one crucible, and a quantity of quicksilver into another. The tin was melted in the fire, and the mercury heated. It was then poured into the melted tin, and at the same time a red powder, enclosed in wax, was projected into the amalgam. An agitation took place, and a great deal of smoke was exhaled from the crucible. But this speedily subsided, and the whole being poured out, formed six heavy ingots, having the color of gold. The goldsmith was called in by the Italian, and requested to make a rigid examination of the smallest of these ingots. The goldsmith, not content with the touchstone and the application of aqua fortis, exposed the metal on the cupel with lead, and fused it with antimony. "'but it sustained no loss. "'He found it possessed of the ductility "'and specific gravity of gold, "'and full of admiration, "'he exclaimed that he had never worked before "'upon gold so perfectly pure. "'The Italian made him a present "'of the smallest ingot as a recompense, "'and then, accompanied by M. Gross, "'he repaired to the mint, "'where he received from M. Bacuette, "'the mint master, "'a quantity of Spanish gold coin, "'equal in weight to the ingots "'which he had brought.' To M. Gross he made a present of twenty pieces, on account of the attention that he had paid to him, and after paying his bill at the inn he added fifteen pieces more, to serve to entertain M. Gross and M. Bureau for some days, and in the meantime he ordered a supper, that he might on his return have the pleasure of supping with these two gentlemen. He went out, but never returned, leaving behind him the greatest regret and admiration. It is needless to add that M. Gross and M. Bureau continued to enjoy themselves at the inn till the fifteen pieces, which the stranger had left, were exhausted. Mangitis gives also the following relation, which he states upon the authority of an English bishop, who communicated it to him in the year 1685, and at the same time gave him about a half an ounce of the gold which the alchemist had made. A stranger, meanly dressed, went to Mr. Boyle, and after conversing for some time about chemical processes, requested him to furnish him with antimony, and some other common metallic substances, which then fortunately happened to be in Mr. Boyle's laboratory. These were put into a crucible, which was then placed in a melting furnace. As soon as these metals were fused, the stranger showed a powder to the attendants, which he projected into the crucible and instantly went out, directing the servants to allow the crucible to remain in the furnace till the fire went out of its own accord, and promising at the same time to return in a few hours. But as he never fulfilled this promise, Boyle ordered the cover to be taken off the crucible, and found that it contained a yellow-colored metal, possessing all the properties of pure gold, and only a little lighter than the weight of the materials originally put into the crucible. The following strange story is related by Helvetius, physician to the Prince of Orange, in his Vitalis Aureus. Helvetius was a disbeliever of the philosopher's stone and the universal medicine, and even turned Sir Canelm Digby's sympathetic powder into ridicule. On the 27th of December, 1666, A stranger called upon him, and after conversing for some time about a universal medicine, showed a yellow powder, which he affirmed to be the philosopher's stone, and at the same time five large plates of gold, which had been made by means of it. Helvetius earnestly entreated that he would give him a little of this powder, or at least that he would make a trial of its power, but the stranger refused, promising, however, to return in six weeks he returned accordingly, and after much entreaty he gave to Helvetius a piece of the stone, not larger than the size of a rapeseed. When Helvetius expressed his doubt whether so small a portion would be sufficient to convert four grains of lead into gold, the adept broke off one half of it, and assured him that what remained was more than sufficient for the purpose." Helvetius, during the first conference, had concealed a little of the stone below his nail. This he threw into the melted lead, but it was almost all driven off in smoke, leaving only a vitreous earth. When he mentioned the circumstance, the stranger informed him that the powder must be enclosed in wax before it be thrown into the melted lead, lest it should be injured by the smoke of the lead." the stranger promised to return the next day, and show him the method of making the projection. But having failed to make his appearance, Helvetius, in the presence of his wife and son, put six drachms of lead into a crucible, and as soon as it was melted, he threw into it the fragment of the philosopher's stone in his possession, previously covered over with wax." The crucible was now covered with its lid, and left for a quarter of an hour in the fire, at the end of which time he found the whole lead converted into gold. The color was at first a deep green. Being poured into a conical vessel, it assumed a blood-red color. But when cold, it acquired the true tint of gold. Being examined by a goldsmith, he considered it as pure gold. He requested Porelius, who had the charge of the Dutch Mint to try its value. Two drachms of it being subjected to quartation and solution in aqua fortis, were found to have increased in weight by two scruples. This increase was doubtless owing to the silver, which still remained enveloped in the gold after the action of the aqua fortis. To endeavor to separate the silver more completely. The gold was again fused with seven times its weight of antimony, and treated in the usual manner, but no alteration took place in the weight. It would be easy to relate many other similar narratives, but the three which I have given are the best authenticated that I am acquainted with. The reader will observe that they are all stated on the authority not of the persons who were the actors, but of others to whom they related them, and some of these, as the English bishop perhaps not very familiar with chemical processes, and therefore liable to leave out or misstate some essential particulars. The evidence, therefore, though the best that can be got, is not sufficient to authenticate these wonderful stories. A little latent vanity might easily induce the narrators to suppress or alter some particulars, which, if known, would have stripped the statements of everything marvelous which they contain and let us into the secret of the origin of the gold, which these alchemists boasted they had fabricated. Whoever will read the statements of Paracelsus, respecting his knowledge of the philosopher's stone, which he applied not to the formation of gold but to medicine, or whoever will examine his formulas for making the stone, will easily satisfy himself that Paracelsus possessed no real knowledge of the subject, but to convey as precise ideas on the subject as possible, it may be worthwhile to state a few of the methods by which the alchemists persuaded themselves that they could convert the baser metals into gold. In the year 1694, an old gentleman called upon Mr. Wilson, at that time a chemist in London, and informed him that at last, after forty years search, he had met with an ample recompense for all his trouble and expenses. This he confirmed with some oaths and imprecations, but considering his great weakness and age, he looked upon himself as incapable to undergo the fatigues of the process. I have here, says he, a piece of saw, gold, that I made from silver about four years ago, and I cannot trust any man but you with so rare a secret. We will share equally the charges and profit which will render us wealthy enough to command the world." The nature of the process being stated, Mr. Wilson thought it not unreasonable, especially as he aimed at no peculiar advantage for himself. He accordingly put it to the trial in the following manner. Twelve ounces of Japan copper were beat into thin plates, and laid stratum super stratum with three ounces of flowers of sulfur in a crucible. It was exposed in a melting furnace to a gentle heat, till the sulfurous flames expired, when cold, the ace ustum, sulphuret of copper, was pounded and stratified again, and this process was repeated five times. Mr. Wilson does not inform us whether the powder was mixed with the flowers of sulphur every time it was heated, but this must have been the case. Otherwise, the sulphuret would have been again converted into metallic copper, which would have melted into a mass. By this first process, then, by of copper was formed composed of equal weights of sulfur and copper two six pounds of iron wire were put into a large glass body and twelve pounds of muriatic acid poured upon it six days elapsed during which it stood in a gentle heat before the acid was saturated with the iron The solution was then decanted off and filtered, and six pounds of new muriatic acid poured on the undissolved iron. This acid, after standing a sufficient time, was decanted off and filtered. Both liquids were put into a large retort and distilled by a sand heat. Towards the end, when the drops from the retort became yellow, The receiver was changed, and the fire increased to the highest degree in which the retort was kept between four and six hours. When all was cold, the receiver was taken off, and a quantity of flowers was found in the neck of the retort, variously colored, like the rainbow. The yellow liquor in the receiver weighed ten ounces and a half. The flowers, chloride of iron, two ounces and three drams. The liquid and flowers were put into a clean bottle. 3. Half a pound of sol-enixum, sulfate of potash, and a pound and a half of nitric acid were put into a retort. When the salt had dissolved in the acid, ten ounces of mercury, previously distilled through quicklime and salt of tartar, were added. The whole being distilled to dryness, a fine yellow mass, penetrate of mercury, remained in the bottom of the retort. The liquor was returned with half a pound of fresh nitric acid, and the distillation repeated. The distillation was repeated a third time, urging this last cohobation with the highest degree of fire. When all was cold, various colored mass was found in the bottom of the retort. This mass was doubtless a mixture of sulfate of potash and per nitrate of mercury, with some oxide of mercury. 4 four ounces of fine silver were dissolved in a pound of aquafortis. To the solution was added the bisulphrate of copper, four ounces, of the mixture of sulphate of potash, per nitrate of mercury, and oxide of mercury, one ounce and a half, and of the solution of perchloride of iron, two ounces and a half. When these had stood in a retort twenty-four hours, the liquor was decanted off and four ounces of nitric acid were poured upon the little matter that was not dissolved. Next morning, a total dissolution was obtained. The whole of this dissolution was put into a retort and distilled almost to dryness. The liquid was poured back, and the distillation repeated three times, the last time the retort being urged by a very strong fire, till no fumes appeared and not a drop fell. The matter left in the bottom of the retort was now put into a crucible. All the corrosive fumes were gently evaporated, and the residue melted down with a fluxing powder. This process was expected to yield five ounces of pure gold, but on examination the silver was the same, except the loss of half a pennyweight, as when dissolved in the aqua fortis there were indeed some grains among the scoria which appeared like gold and would not dissolve in aqua fortis no doubt they consisted of peroxide of iron or perhaps persulphurate of iron mr wilson's alchemistical friend not satisfied with this first failure insisted upon a repetition of the process with some alteration in the method and addition of a certain quantity of gold the whole was accordingly gone through again, but it is unnecessary to say that no gold was obtained, or at least the two drams of gold employed had increased in weight by only two scruples and thirteen grains. This addition was doubtless owing to a little silver from which it had not been freed. End of section two recording by lawrence trask Mount Vernon, Ohio, interfaceaudio dot com.